Shabbat Shalom. I'm Ephraim Judah with Lion and Lamb Ministries, and thank you for joining us for our Arab Shabbat broadcast here at B'nai Shalom. From our family to yours, thank you for inviting us into your home each and every week. Each week we do new teachings, um, every time on the Torah and also on the Brit Hadashah. Unfortunately, my father's feeling a little under the weather this week, um, but we're going to continue and have a wonderful service here at B'nai Shalom. A couple of announcements that we have that I'd like to share with you. We are hosting a Hanukkah conference. Conference uh, coming up in December, December 15th, 16th, and 17th. That's a Friday through a Sunday, and it'll be hosted here in Norman, Oklahoma, um, at our congregational facility for Hebraic Family Fellowship. We're going to have uh, teachings, workshops, evening programs there all day on Friday and Saturday. Um, so we invite many brethren to come and uh, join us for the Festival of Lights for a Hanukkah conference uh, here in Norman. Uh, you do have to register for that event. The uh, Registration cost is very low per person, so we're encouraging a number of people to come. Go to HanukkahEvent.com to register for that. We'd love to see uh, everyone there at our Hanukkah conference, uh, our first annual Hanukkah conference here in Norman. We're also going to be resuming our Q&A broadcast uh, where my father answers a series of questions and we've been uh, collecting them for a couple of months because of Sukkot. Uh, it's been a little while since our last one. But on November 15th uh, is when we will broadcast another brand new Q&A session uh, with me and my father. So we encourage you to join us for that. Once again, if you have questions that you'd ever like to have answered at those broadcasts, you can uh, send them to qa at lionlamb.net. We'll try to get to them as soon as we can um, to get all of your questions answered uh, that you might have in your faith as we walk in the Hebrew Roots movement. Also, one more announcement for our local audience. We have a men's prayer breakfast uh, coming up this Sunday. So we hope anybody in the local area come and join us. Join the men as we uh, pray for this ministry, our community, and uh, for the world and all the issues that are in it. Um, so come and join, join us for prayer uh, here coming up this Sunday. So for right now, let us get our Sabbath started with the Kiddush and the family blessings. Once again, thank you for joining us here at B'nai Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Join my family as we usher in the Sabbath. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech Asher kiddushanu bemetzvotav Betzivanu lehad lekner Shel Shabbat Amen Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by his commandments and has commanded us to be a light to the nations and has given us the issue of the Messiah, the light of the world. Amen. Bless the wine. Baruch Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, Borei Amen. Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. One beautiful bread.
המוציא. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. Let's bless our wives. Lord, thank you so much for blessing me with my wife. I pray that you bless her hands as she prepares our home and takes care of it throughout the week. Thank you for blessing her hands as she takes care of our child. And thank you for blessing me with everything I can do to bless my wife so that she continues to bless me. Thank you, Father. Amen. Amen. Now we do the blessings over the sons. Yeah, that's you.
Bahu etarunai ham vorach. Baruch Adonai Havorach Le'olam Vahed. Bless the Lord who is to be praised. Blessed be the Lord who is praised for all eternity. Amen. And now the Michmocha. Michmocha Ba'elim Adonai Michmocha Nedahar Bachodesh Nohorat Echilot Osefelei Osefelei Who is like you? O Lord among the gods, who is like you, Lord, there is none else. You are awesome in praise, doing wonders, O Lord, who is like you, O Lord. Amen. And now the blessing of the Messiah. Baruch atah Adonai, Elohenu melech ha'alam, asher natan lanu et derech ha'yeshua b'mashiach yeshua. All together. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the way of salvation in Messiah Yeshua. Amen. And now the Veshamru. Altogether, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and on the seventh day, he ceased from his work and was refreshed. Amen. For all turn and face east toward Jerusalem for the watchword of our faith, the Shema. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad Baruch Shem Kivod Malchuto Le'olam Vayed Yeshua HaMashiach Hu Adonai Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be His name, whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, He is Lord. Amen. And now the Ve'ahavta. Ve'ahavta et Adonai Ochecha, b'chol levavcha uv'kol nashicha, uv'chol me'odecha. Ve'heyu ha'devarim ha'ale asher nechim e'zavcha, hayom alevavcha. V'shinantam lavanecha. All together. 
And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall speak of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them for a sign upon your hand and they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Amen. Father God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Abba, we magnify you here in this place, and we declare that there is no God like you, no king like you. Father, all we can say is that our lives belong to you. We honor you. We love you. You're our all in all. And Father, we magnify your holy name here in this place.
to the book of Genesis to chapter 23 where our portion will begin for this week as you are opening the scripture as always I'd like to do the blessing before the Torah Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam asher b'chabanu mikol ha'amim venatan lanu et torato Baruch atah Adonai nonten ha-torah amen Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has chosen us from among all peoples and has given us your Torah. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Our Torah portion for this week is entitled Chaya Sarah. And that is the Hebrew for the life of Sarah. It begins in Genesis chapter 23 where it says this, Sarah lived 127 years and these were the years of the life of Sarah. As we pick our story back up here in the Torah cycle, our last week's portion had the very famous passage of the Akita, the binding of Isaac, where Abraham was called by God to go and take Isaac, the promised son, to go and make a sacrifice him and give him back to the Lord. And I said last week that um, I believe Abraham believed in the resurrection, that he with so much faith went and did as the Lord called, yet... Um, God stopped him. The angel of the Lord called to him and said, Abraham, do not lay a hand on your son Isaac. And he was spared and he was, um, he did not have to be sacrificed. So we had that story and we were talking about Abraham, we were talking about Isaac, but one of the people, one of the main members of the family, if you will, that was not mentioned in that entire passage is Sarah. Sarah, the wife of Abraham, Sarah, the mother of uh, Isaac, and what would she have thought? What was her, um, what, the, the narrative of the scripture does not give us explicitly whether Abraham told Sarah that's what he was going to do. 
whether she knew something was up, the fact that Abraham was going with Isaac with wood and that that there was something kind of fishy going on with the two of them leaving together as if she maybe knew in her heart or in her spirit what was going to be done. We don't know if she, how she might have felt about it, whether she knew or not. But the thing that we can figure and learn, and many of the sages of Israel have said, that because Sarah passes away, not only uh, at 127 years old, which at that time, that was a very young age for someone to die because of the common lifespan of people at that time. So she died young. But then this also comes immediately on the heels of this time in which Abraham was going to go and sacrifice Isaac. And some have speculated that it was that thought, the thought of losing this son, this promised son. She was barren for so long and she had her only son at the age of 90 years old and that he was going to then go and be sacrificed if that thought is what killed her if that's what that that she could not bear to live with the idea that her son wasn't with her anymore if you look at the chronology of that at her age that means that um, Isaac was 37 years old when Sarah died and that's because those these events seem to be very closely tied to each other that's one of the reasons why we believe that um, Isaac was in that that age range in his 30s maybe close to 37 when the Akita actually took place So Sarah passes away. One of the very sad tragedies of this uh, is that it says that she passed away in Hebron in the land of Canaan. If you look in our previous passage uh, there at verse 19 of chapter 22, it says Abraham and Isaac went to go and dwell in Beersheba. When When we read that, we realize Sarah and Abraham were not together when Sarah died. That this was a news that, that, that Sarah passing away then was news that was brought to Abraham at another place. And it's almost like that there was no way to ever say goodbye. And this probably uh, affected Isaac as well. And so this is this kind of adds to um, the the sadness, if you will, of Sarah, the wife of Abraham, the one, the the mother of the promised son, that she passed away at this time. There's a great deal of sadness there. And one of the things that we always do with this Torah portion is we talk about we talk about when one passes away. We talk about being comforted after the loss of a loved one, and that's actually a theme that kind of goes through our Torah portion uh, this week. In chapter 23, it's actually fairly short here in in Genesis. We have the story and the narrative of Abraham going before the people of Canaan, specifically the sons of Heth, and going to go find a place and purchase a place so that he may bury Sarah. If you remember, he was a stranger in the land. He's in a place not where he grew up, not where he dwelled before, not where he was from, but he was in the land of Canaan. He's still a stranger in the land amongst all the other Canaanites. And that he, even though God promised Abraham that this was the promised land, that this was the place where he was going to dwell, where he was going to be, that he still was a stranger in that land. He didn't just, God didn't just give this land to Abraham. He still had to deal amongst these other men. And even the, the men even call uh, Abraham, you are a mighty prince among us. So there was a level of respect over the years as, as Abraham dwelt in this land. But if you remember, there still was no specific 
land that belonged to Abraham amongst all these other people. He kind of traveled and wondered, and he was, the whole family of Abraham was a mighty company that nobody would dare kind of come against because of the riches and the blessing of Abraham's house that he had there. So what he does is he goes to the sons of Heth and he says, I need a place to bury my dead. Please give me a a cave. And he actually points out a very specific place. Um, And they talk to this man named Ephron that is uh, owned a land that was an area called Machpelah. And what it is, is this was a field, and in that field there was, near this field was a cave. And this was the place in which he wished to purchase, and so that he could bury Sarah. And so, one of the reasons that we're talking about this, is the Abraham looking for the closure of the loss of his wife. For some people, one of the most important things about after losing a loved one and moving on from that is to have that closure, is to have them, put them in the ground, pay your respects, and then to, to move on, if you will. And that almost, that's a necessary process when somebody has passed away. And so we see this in the heart of Abraham desiring this place to just, may I just lay my wife in peace, lay her to rest in a place. And the sons of Heth, having no sympathy for what Abraham's going through, they, you know, they, they are uh, wheelers and dealers, if you will. And one of the things that was said was that, um, that they are trying to give Abraham the land. Now, it, at first blush, it looks like they're being hospitable. Abraham says, I'd like to have this cave. And they said, I'll give it to you. What is, I'm, you don't have to pay for it. You know, and the way that that worked is that in ancient times, if anything was ever given to you, there was always kind of left room for interpretation. Was it borrowed? Could it be taken back? And Abraham, bowing himself to the people, showing a great amount of respect, says, no, tell me the price, I will pay money for it. And so our scripture is extremely explicit here in this exchange, in that he wants to pay for this land so that it belongs to him, so that it is his property. Um, Let me go ahead and read here specifically in our scripture here. Um, Let me do verse 9 here in 23. And he said, and Abraham saying, give me the cave of Machpelah, which he has, which is at the end of his field. Let me, get, let him give it to me at full price as property for a burial place among you. Ephron, who's the owner of the, uh, of the cave, he says this, he dwelt among the sons of Heth, and he's a Hittite, he answers Abraham and says this, in the presence of the son of Heth, sons of Heth, who enter this gate and of his city, saying, no, my lord, hear me, I give you the field, the cave that is in it, I give it to you in the presence of the sons of all my people, I give it to you, bury your dead. Abraham bowed himself down to the people of the land. He spoke to Ephron in the hearing of the people, saying, If you will give it, please hear me. I will give you money for the field. Take it from me, and I will bury my dead. Ephron answered Abraham, saying to him, My Lord, listen to me. The land is worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? So bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron. Abraham weighed out the silver for Ephron, which he named. In the hearing of the sons of Heth, 400 shekels of silver, currency of the merchants. There's a interesting negotiation tactic that I always like mentioning is this, is that you may have heard whenever somebody's negotiating for something, there's a phrase that goes this, whoever is the first to name a price is usually the one that loses. 
whoever names is the first name of price, they, they end up not getting what they want, and then the negotiation kind of whittles down from there. And so you see Ephron maybe in facetiously saying, what is, what is a field and a cave worth 400 shekels? What's that between you and me? And Abraham promptly pays him the money. That's what it is. He named his price, and suddenly... The, it then belongs to Abraham. Very explicit instructions that it says this was hearing, it was heard by the sons of Heth, so we had witnesses. It was exactly 400 shekels of silver, as was stated, and it was the currency of the merchants. So there's no question about whether it was the right currency, it was a different kind of shekel, it was a different kind of money. Very specifically, this land now belonged to Abraham. One of the things that, uh, a question that was asked is, why didn't Abraham just take it? Why didn't he just take the cave? Now, I'm not saying after they were given to him, but, but even by force. If you are mourning the loss of a loved one, sometimes people react with anger. Sometimes people uh, react harshly at that time. Abraham, continuing to show his righteousness and his hospitality, bowing himself before the people, he had the power that he could have just taken it. But the thing that he does in his, the example of his faith and the righteousness that he did is an example for us. Is that not only are we supposed to accept what God has given to us, but we have to do it in the right way. We have to do righteous, righteousness, but we have to do it righteously. Justice, justice you shall pursue. Not only shall you pursue justice, but you shall do it in a just way. And Abraham gives us that example of that not only was it that this was for to be taken, he could have taken it. However, no, even with through the mourning of the loss of a loved one, he still is doing this in a righteous way, doing it appropriately, paying for the cave, paying the correct amount of money, bowing before the people, and doing it in a good and righteous way. That is the example that we have through Abraham. And we have this as a deed specifically stating that he did purchase this land. And one of the things, if we go to modern day, there is a place called Machpelah that we know and is a place you can visit in the land of Israel. And it's near Hebron in the land of Israel. And right now it's under Palestinian control. Now, Jews can freely go there at times. There's actually a synagogue there that's in that place as well. But one of the things is this has been one of the most disputed pieces of land in all of the land of Israel. That the, that the uh, Palestinians stake claim to it, that it's like that they still own it. Now, it is the burial place of Sarah and of Abraham. However, it's disputed on whether it belongs to Jews. It belongs to the sons of Israel, the, the, the Israelites, that was through the lineage of Isaac. And so what's interesting is this is one of the most disputed places. However, in the scripture we have one of the most explicit exchanges of a land deed that we have here in our scripture. And so it causes more and more people to dispute the scripture, dispute the account of the scripture that these things belong to Abraham and to his descendants. I hope and pray one day that all of those issues will be resolved, that we can understand and that people will hold fast to the instruction of the scripture, which I believe is true, that those that these areas and these pieces of land belong to the children of Israel. Amen? So here he buries his dead here at this place, and this is how he copes with, uh, with the loss of Sarah. We now go to chapter 24 of Genesis, and now we kind of turn our attention back to Isaac. 
What are we going to do with Isaac? Isaac is now, he's a, he's a man, 37 years old or more. And how does he, what is he needing to do to cope with the loss of his mother? And Abraham, what's interesting is that Isaac is not specifically talked about here as to what his whereabouts are, what he's doing. What we have is we have an interaction between Abraham and an unnamed servant of Abraham. Now many of us believe, and, and, and many sages all agree, that the servant that is going to serve Abraham here in Genesis chapter 24 is Eliezer. It's his oldest servant. It was Eliezer of Damascus that he asked the Lord at one point in time if he was going to be the man that was actually going to provide an heir for the house of Abraham. And God said, no, Abraham, it will be from your loins that you will have a son and he will be the heir. But this servant, Eliezer, has been a part of uh, Abraham's house for a long period of time. But here in our scripture, it, the, it is always mentioned as Abraham's servant or the servant. Eliezer's name does not appear here in the scripture. And it's very interesting why that is. I said uh, last week, and I've explained in great detail, talking about Isaac now, that Isaac and his life is patterned after the Yeshua the Messiah. That he is the promised son. He was born of a miraculous birth. And he was laid upon wood to be sacrificed. And that he was bound and scarred at the wrists. And I've laid out all of these different things that tie Isaac to being, or a parallel, or a shadow of the Messiah. Very interesting how that all works. In fact, there's one thing I do want to bring out that even reinforces this. Um, I have a note here, uh, a, a uh, passage of a commentary from a Reform Jew, a rabbi, and what his commentary was on Isaac. So this is very interesting that I'd like to share this, and this is to reinforce the concept of Isaac being the promised son and the shadow and parallel that he is to the Messiah. And then we'll go in to see what the pattern and the parallel of Eliezer, the servant of Abraham, and what sort of role he fulfills. This rabbi, uh, by the name of Bruce Caden, he points this out. The whole aspect of this is that he's pointing out the differences between Isaac and be, from his father Abraham and his son Jacob. See, because you have Abraham the father, you have Isaac, and then you have Jacob, and then you have Isaac, this, this man who was sandwiched in between the other patriarchs. In fact, there's very little scripture about Isaac. In fact, in a couple of portions, we're going to move on to Jacob, and so we will spend very little time here in scripture talking about Isaac. So there are some unique differences between Isaac when you compare Isaac as compared to Abraham and Jacob. A couple of things. Isaac never leaves the land of Israel, never leaves the land of Canaan. In fact, in our passage, it'll talk about the servant, Eliezer, is to go in back to the land where Abraham came from to find a bride for Isaac. And he was said, no, Isaac cannot go. He's not to leave that place. And there's no narrative in Scripture ever that he ever went down to Egypt as Abraham did or as Jacob did. He stayed in the land. He also, as far as the Scripture describes, he only had one one wife and he only fathered children through uh, one woman. Abraham will remarry at the end of our portion here. He'll have more sons. Jacob will have multiple wives. Isaac marries only one woman and fathers children only through one woman. Also, 
His name was never changed. I pointed that out last week. That God actually named him. told Abraham, this is what you will name your son. His name will be Isaac. If you remember, Abraham had his name changed from Abram to Abraham. Jacob has his name changed from Jacob to Israel. And so those men were named by their fathers. And then God renames them at another time. Isaac never had his name changed. Almost as if God had his hand on the birth and the life of Isaac. Now let me read here a couple of paragraphs here specifically of this commentary uh, from this rabbi, what he has to say. What are we to make of these differences between Isaac on one hand and his father Abraham and son Jacob on the other? Abraham and Jacob seem to characterize the realities of this life, wandering from place to place with no place to call home, the need to reinvent oneself because of the challenges one faces, the, differences, uh, the difficulties of life when faced with barrenness and other realities. Abraham and Jacob represent this world, the challenges that we face as individuals and as a, and as a people, life in all of its messiness. Isaac, on the other hand, represents the ideal, the messianic world which we strive to become, a person with a place to call home, the ability to be true to oneself and not need to reinvent oneself because of the circumstances beyond our control, the the ability to remain faithful and loyal to one person in the midst of all the challenges of the Israelites in the ancient world and in the midst of all the all-too-real challenging stories of Abraham and Jacob. The Torah offers a glimpse of what it will be like someday when we've mastered the challenges we face to be able to live where we want and live and be true to who we are. The rabbis refer to Isaac as the master of suffering due to his ability to overcome the trials that he faced from the Akidah to losing his vision in old age. His ability to overcome these challenges should inspire us to deal with the many challenges that we face so that we might create a world where the ideals of Isaac's life become a reality reality. Judaism has looked at this and they've seen the life of Isaac and they see this um, this pattern to follow after in this man and in his righteousness that as compared to Abraham and to Jacob but then he, that he was the master of suffering that we strive to live as Isaac lived. Now in Judaism they don't believe in Yeshua of Nazareth being the Messiah. But they are in search of a Messiah-like figure, and they almost find a Messiah-like figure here in Isaac. But as I've already pointed out, the life of Isaac already parallels and is a shadow of Yeshua the Messiah and his sacrifice, and that he is the one we should look toward and strive for the ideals of a good world, a a messianic world that we strive, uh, a a place, a person to to follow as an example. So they look at Isaac, but they don't see Yeshua, but I've already been drawing the parallels and the connections between Isaac and Yeshua. Sometimes I want to just talk to my messianic brethren and tell them to get smart. You missed it by that much, just that much. That you could have, that, that it's, don't you see it's Yeshua that is being described here, not Isaac. That there's the, that's the parallel and that's the connection. So we've established that Isaac is this pattern, this representation of the promised son, of Yeshua the Messiah. So our passage here in Genesis now talks about an unnamed servant who's going to go to a place to find a bride for that son. Now he's told, go find a bride, go back to the land where I came from, where Abraham came from, and go find a bride there. Don't find one here in the land of Canaan. Now, what's strange about that is that both peoples, both places were a place where there was idolatry. 
that Abraham and his family still came from a, po- a place where there was idolatry. We'll see, uh, we'll meet a man named Laban and we'll find out that he still was an idolater in his house back then. So it's like both places have idolatry. Well, the people of Canaan was apparently extremely wicked, yet we're going back to this place to, to find a bride for the son. So the servant has to go still back into a place where there is idolatry, where there's uncleanness, and that's where we're going to draw and find a bride for the promised son. You're starting to maybe start to see the word picture here that I'm, I'm describing here. That this and, wh- and one of the things I believe is this, why Eliezer is not named. It's almost because it would give away the pattern of what's going on here. Because if you look at Eliezer's name, it means God is help. Or more specifically, God's helper. Now anybody who's a fan of the Gospel of John knows that, the, that it, what is described as the helper of God is the Holy Spirit. Is the thing that goes into the world, convicts the world uh, that, it is, that it has sinned and then who has to draw them back draw them back to a belief in God and in the Son and bring them back into the covenant back with God and with His Son and the great marriage of the Lamb at the end of the age. What is it that goes into the world, goes and convicts the bride to bring them back into the covenant? It's the Holy Spirit. It's the Helper. So that's the pattern and parallel that's going on here. Eliezer, the Helper, is going into a place where it's unclean, where there is idolatry, and finding a bride for the promised son. Very interesting language here that goes here. I'll paraphrase some of this where Eliezer, he swears to Abraham that he will go and he will find a wife. That he will find a wife not of the Canaanites, but he's going to go back to the land uh, where he came from, which we believe is um, near Damascus, near uh, modern day Syria, which is where Laban and where the family of Abraham came from. So the servant goes, and he's going to go find the bride. Now what he does is he goes with the authority of his master. He doesn't go on his own accord. He doesn't go because he's desiring to do it. He's like, he is serving his master, Abraham, to go and do it. And he, so again, it's sworn to him. God also says here, let me go ahead and start reading some of our scripture here. Uh, we're in Genesis 24. Let's start reading at verse 6. But Abraham said to him, Beware that you do not take my son back there. This is again where he's saying, Isaac shall not go back to the place. The Lord God of heaven who took me from my father's house, from the land of my family, and who spoke to me, swore to me, saying, To your descendants I give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. And if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be released from this oath. Very interesting. He's sending them on this mission to go find a bride. But then he gives him a very explicit uh, out, if you will, from fulfilling the covenant. If the woman you find is not willing to go, then this oath is, is null and void. Then, we're not, then obviously we're not bringing a bride back to the son. And he's saying this, only do not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Now, let me just go ahead and tell you that that wasn't his thigh that he put his hand under, but this was a part of a confirming of the covenant between Eliezer and Abraham that he was going to fulfill this, and that this was a covenant having to do with the descendants of Abraham and the seed that came from Abraham. That's what the purpose of this covenant 
covenant is, is to find a bride for this promised son that all of the families of the earth are to be blessed. So to do that, we need a bride for the son Isaac. The servant took ten of the master's camels and departed. There's an interesting thing there with the number ten. I pointed out the number ten is tied to Isaac's name. The first letter of Isaac is Yod, and the number ten is representative of that. And so this number ten is prevalent here. Also, there's other hints and things of what this number 10 means. It means confidence in God. It means God's judgment, such as in the Ten Commandments. It's also, there's almost a hidden prophecy even deeper to where there are 10 lost tribes in the, at the end of the age that are scattered into the nations that it's like if we are paralleling this to the work of the Holy Spirit going into the world to find the bride of Messiah, that then we're, what are we looking for? We're looking for the ten lost tribes. So there's a amazing pattern and parallel through all of this of that parallels prophecy that will come later. He takes ten camels and then he prays to God. He stops at a well and he probably stops at a well with ten camels and he's like, man, Lord, what, what are we doing here? I mean, well, he, he's coming to a well. He would have every reason to be traveling and he's going to go find... I mean, it's like a needle in a haystack to just... We're going to go into the world and we're going to find the bride for his son. I hope she's there. I hope we find somebody. So he prays. And this is his prayer. What an amazing prayer this is. He says, Oh Lord, God of my master Abraham. Once again being very reverent to who his master is. Please give me success this day and show kindness to my master Abraham. The prayer is for someone other than himself. This is a pattern that we can learn every single day that the Lord will answer prayers, especially when you're not doing it for yourself, but you're doing it for someone else. And we'll see that fulfilled here very quickly. He says this, Behold, here I stand at the well of water. The daughters of men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let it be that the young woman... To whom I say, please let down your pitcher that I may drink. And she says, drink, and I will also give your camels a drink. Let her be the one that you have appointed to be your servant Isaac. And by this I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. And it happened before he had finished speaking. That behold, Rebekah, who was born of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother came out with her pitcher on her shoulder. The young man was very beautiful to behold, a virgin. No man had known her. And she went down to the well, filled her pitcher, came up, and the servant ran to meet her and said, Please, let me have a drink of water from your pitcher. She said, Drink, my lord. Then she quickly let her pitcher down and gave him a drink. And when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. Before Eliezer even finished this prayer, it was already being answered. Rebecca was already on her way, already on her way to the well. And that's something that we can learn and figure as well, that when we pray for someone else, we pray for our master, we pray for someone else's benefit, that sometimes even before the prayer is done, it's already in the process of being answered. That the Lord knows our prayers. The Lord knows what we are asking for. And sometimes the Lord's will of how it is fulfilled sometimes is already in the process without us even knowing. There's also another pattern going back down to the parallel between the prophecy of the Holy Spirit going into the world to retrieve Israel, the lost ten tribes, the bride of Messiah, that there are already those with a heart who have turned already back to the covenant. 
that there are those who already believe, who are already on their way to the well of living water before the fulfillment of that prophecy has even come to pass, if you will. So what's very interesting here is that obviously the prayer is answered and that she is the, she is the one. That, that Eliezer sees this and he sees the prayer answered. And it's an amazing amount of hospitality that she provides that shows that she is to be part of this household, of the household of Abraham. You know, the household that's known for its hospitality. She comes and offers a drink of water to ten camels as well as this stranger servant, you know, riding on ten camels kind of coming along the way. If you look it up very easily, one camel can drink up to 30 gallons of water at one time. And she says that she will bring water until they have finished drinking. They were traveling, they were probably tired, and a thirsty camel will drink 30 gallons of water all by itself. With 10 camels, that's 300 gallons of water that she would have had to have drawn for these camels to drink and be filled and be finished. So the hospitality of that, you can imagine this was a major process, that this is something that we know for a certain, because this offer was made, that this was of the Lord. Almost as if she already knew, was already being led by the Spirit of God to perform this act. And sometimes when we're led by the Spirit of God, sometimes we do things that wouldn't make any sense, that wouldn't be explained. However, sometimes the Lord has His hand on our actions and the things that we do. And if some, sometimes the Lord might lead you to do something crazy, like trying to water 10 camels with 300 gallons of water. Sometimes the Lord has a plan and a purpose to that. And so one of the things we should always do is have confidence that God is leading our steps, even when we do something that might sound a little crazy. Because when it's all said and done, this worked out very well for Rebecca. Rebecca is then given by Eliezer, he's, she, he's given two bracelets. They each weigh 10 shekels of gold. There's that number 10 again. Also, she's given a ring, a nose ring specifically, and that the ring can sometimes represent a sign of a covenant, that she is the, the, the daughter of promise that is going to come and be a part of the family and will be the bride of Isaac. What happens here as we go on is that we then go, she then says, invites him back to come back to her house where then we meet her brother Laban. And Laban, very easy to see every time that we we see Laban here. Laban was a wheeler, dealer, a swindler. He was always in it for the financial gain. He shows what appears to be a great deal of hospitality here to Eliezer as he's brought back here. But only after he sees the bracelets of gold on his sister's wrists and he sees the ring. and So he's like, where did these things come from? He then shows the hospitality to the servant. However, we know this is not the same kind of hospitality that, say, Abraham performs or that Rebecca performed that's one of the things you can always see there's, there's a difference sometimes two people can do the same thing but it represents something different Abraham can laugh when he's told he's going to have a son and Sarah can laugh when she's told she's going to have a son but Sarah's reprimanded because her laugh is different than Abraham's laugh or that people can be joyous and, 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 and rejoicing but then somebody can also be looking like they're doing the same thing but then in turn they're actually scoffing just as Ishmael did at the feast after the weaning of Isaac there was a joyous feast and a celebration but Ishmael scoffed and then he was cast out of the family in the same way that hospitality can be shown wonderfully and graciously through, truly with a heart to, of, of grace to, to share with somebody it also can be done with the bad intentions in mind and can be done for material gain 
What happens here in the scripture is actually very interesting. If you read, I encourage you, please read Genesis chapter 24. It's a beautiful passage of scripture about the, the helper of the servant of Abraham going and finding a bride. It's almost like a love story, if you will. And something very interesting that you'll notice here is that the verbiage of the passage is a very long chapter because the wording is almost repeated verbatim of the story from when Abraham asked Eliezer to make a covenant with him to the prayer that he prayed to the narrative of what he saw when Rebekah came, offered the water and that he was invited back. That wording in that story is described word for word almost in our passage twice in Genesis chapter 24. Why is that? Why is there such a specificness to, to what is being said here? And what I believe is that I believe this also ties again to this prophecy of the Holy Spirit going into the nations that we have for ourselves two witnesses of the servant going and calling and saying what is the mission of this servant, of the helper, of the master? What is its mission? Its mission is to go. It's made covenant. It is going to go find a bride. It goes into the land. It finds the bride. And then when we meet and we go to interact with the rest of the world, represented by Rebecca's family, Laban, the rest of that household, he then goes and it's almost as if the Holy Spirit going into the world and then describing to the world, this is what I'm here for. Not only is this the work that it's doing, but it's almost trying to convict the family uh, to be a part of what is going on here, to join in with this amazing blessing of God leading this servant to find the bride. So it's described to Laban and to this household. And actually, they, they see and they're like, they're very accepting of this. This is very good. Rebecca is going to uh, be taken from this place and she's going to go and she's going to marry a handsome prince of the land, Isaac. And he's the son of Abraham, this, this great man that was probably known of what he had done. It's also interesting here, Eliezer describes to this family specifically even what the the possibility of this oath being released. He said this to them, to Rebecca, to the family. If, uh, if they will not give her to you, if she will not willingly go, then he will be released from his oath. Almost as if the servant showed his hand. Why would you say that? Why would you? Because th- we're talking about a family. We're talking about taking a daughter from a household and you're basically telling them, if you don't want to go, if you prevent her from going, then the whole deal's off. The whole deal's off, I'm released from my oath. Almost as if we have the example of that the bride must be willing to go. That she has the free will choice of choosing to be the bride of the promised son. That the, the, this goes to that, that the, the bride has to have that desire. It has to be in their heart, be led of the Spirit to do this. It has to be a free will uh, offering of them to be that bride. That's something that we have to do. That's a choice. It's not because it's just predestined. It's not because Eliezer is going to go into this household, remove her by force, and bring a bride. No, it has to be of a willing heart that she goes and is the bride of Messiah. That's something that we have to look inside ourselves and if we are willing to be that bride of Messiah. The family negotiates to have her stay. What it is, is they, they say that it's all like, are you going to, uh, is it time to go? Uh, you know, it's like, when, when is this going to happen? When is she going to go and marry him? He's, he and the men who were with him, they ate, they drank, they stayed all night. This was all celebrating. They arose in the morning and he said, send me away to my master. 
Let's, let, let's do this. She's willing to go. They're accepting of her going. Let's go. Let's br- let me bring the bride to my, to my master. And her brother and her mother said, Let the young woman stay with us a few days, at least ten. There's that number again. After that, she may go. What is this negotiation here? What is this, this description of trying to, to keep her from going into covenant, for, for fulfilling the covenant? It's almost as if the world sometimes doesn't want Israel to go into the covenant, if you will. What is this thing about the number 10? Are they, why did they pick the number 10? Is it because we described this story and we're talking about 10 camels and we're talking about bracelets of 10 shekels and it's like, well, maybe if we say the, the 10 days, maybe that's a sign that they'll stay and they'll realize that this is what they're supposed to do. No, they see right through it that it's like, no, why is the family trying to delay the covenant from taking place? In the same way, why would the world be obstinate and, and against Israel going and being the bride of Messiah. We run into that problem here in our lives in, in, of Israel. What, that there's always things that, the questions, why don't you just stay a little bit longer? I actually parallel it to a great judgment at the end of the age in Revelation chapter 2 where it talks about anyone that goes into captivity will be there for 10 days in captivity. So when the Holy Spirit's convicting us to go and return to the Lord, the Messiah is coming, the promised Son is there, we're going to go be the bride of Messiah, the world says, no, stay with me for 10 days. It's a, I believe it's a parallel to a future prophecy of the captivity of the believers, of the tribulation saints, that the world wants to keep you for ten days and not let you go to be in the covenant. Very interesting little parallel there. What happens is this, my time is running short, but let me really get to this point because this is where this really kind of hits home. Rebecca and her maids arose, they rode camels, followed the man, and the servant took Rebecca and departed. Verse 62. Now Isaac came by way, uh, came by way of Ber Lehi Roy, for he dwelt in the south. And Isaac came out to meditate in the field in the evening, and he lifted up his eyes and he looked, and the camels were coming. He, he knows these were the camels that left. These were the camels that, that went with the servant to go. And, and we don't know this exactly explicitly, but we believe that Isaac kind of knew what was going on here. So what he did is he lifted up his eyes and he would have known that he sees his bride coming over the hills. Also very interesting. This is the first time we've heard about Isaac and what he's doing and his whereabouts since the binding of Isaac, since the Akidah. Since the sacrifice of the promised son, since the time when he was bound and he was laid on the wood and that he was going to be sacrificed, what was going to be the sacrifice of Isaac the promised son, we haven't heard of him. Where has he been? What has he been doing? Only to this point now when the bride is coming and prepared and ready to meet him. We can look at that and we can look at the last 2,000 years of history which the Messiah, Yeshua, that after his sacrifice, he's gone, he hasn't been seen. We don't know where he is. Where has, and we're waiting to get to the point where when the bride is ready to come and join with him, that is when we will see him again. Very interesting here. Rebecca lifts up her eyes here, verse 64. She saw Isaac. She dismounted from her camel. And then she says to the servant, Who is this man walking in the field to meet us? I guarantee you there will be members of the bride of Messiah. 
Israelites, children of Israel, tribulation saints at the end of the age, that when the Messiah returns and he shows up, they will turn to their fellow brother and they'll be, who is this man? Who is this one? People who don't know Yeshua, who's never seen him before and don't know who it is that's being approached. They'll say, who is this man? Is this the groom? Is this the one that we are to marry? In the same way the disciples didn't recognize their master after the resurrection, there'll be those that when you go and when you do reapproach and when you see him again, there'll be those that don't quite recognize him, even at the end of the age. The servant says, this is my master. The Holy Spirit will point out and will show and will convict those and will show, this is the groom, this is the Messiah, this is the king that you have come and you are the bride to this groom. What happens here, the servant tells Isaac all the things that has happened. Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent, took Rebekah, she became his wife, he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after, the, after his mother's death. Here we see the, the amazing end to this love story where it starts with tragedy of losing his mom and then she's comforted by Sarah, by, his, by this daughter of the same household, the family. I guarantee you she had bore a similar physical appearance to his mother. She was beautiful and she was from that same household, that same family and that there was a great amount of comfort to Isaac. This is another way that we can learn how one can be comforted after the loss of a loved one. Is that we can see this example that it's through this comfort, through the work of the servant, the work of the Holy Spirit, that we can be helped and we can be comforted even in a time of loss. While at the same time our passage, once again, has an amazing parallel to prophecy and to the work of Yeshua the Messiah in the same way that the Akidah the binding of Isaac shows the Messiah in, everything, in, in so many patterns and parallels we can see the work of Eliezer the servant the helper of God going into a place of idolatry of uncleanliness to find the bride for that promised son for the bride of Messiah An amazing parallel, amazing passage of Scripture. Once again, I encourage you to read it word for word for yourself um, each and every week as we go and we teach. Um, You know, I try to bring out some of the high points, but I encourage you, read it word for word. See what the Scripture says to you. How does it relate to you if you are to be the bride of Messiah? What is it that you have to do to prepare yourself? What is the hospitality you have to show so that you can fulfill that destiny of being the bride of Messiah? Amen? Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for today. We thank you, Lord, for the blessings of uh, your instruction. We thank you for this Torah portion, Lord, and we thank you for the amazing prophecies that you show and you point out to us here in the Scripture. We thank you for the servant's heart, Lord, of Eliezer and the work that he did, that he did, Father. And we thank you, Lord, for the hospitality of Rebecca, and that we we can see the fulfillment of your covenants being fulfilled and the happy ending that it brings, Father. So, Lord, we love you, we bless you, we thank you for all the things and all the instruction that you give to us here in this place and here each and every week as we go through the Torah cycle. Lord, may you make it new to us each and every day, each and every week, Lord, as you encourage us and strengthen us in our most holy faith and our belief in you. And that we continue to keep our eyes focused on the kingdom, Lord, and the soon coming of your son, Yeshua, and his salvation. And we thank you for his sacrifice and all the things that you have given to us. We give you all the honor, the glory, and the praise. It's in your Son, Yeshua, we pray. Amen. The blessing after the Torah. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher Natan Lanu Torah Temet 
Vachayalam nata betokenu, Baruch ata Adonai nonten hatorah. Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the Torah of truth and has planted everlasting life in our midst. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Shabbat Shalom, everyone. Shabbat Shalom. Ah, this is uh, such a great week, and I'm excited to be here with you. Unfortunately, uh, as you know, Bonnie's just feeling a little bit under the weather, and so I got a call uh, today to come in and teach the uh, Brit Hadashah portion, the New Testament portion, and I'm really excited about that. Um, and so before we dig in, let's have a quick word of prayer. Father, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we bless you and thank you for this Sabbath that you've given us and ask that as we dig into your word that you would lead us and guide us into your truth. In Yeshua's name, amen. All right, well, this week's portion comes from the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And this week's portion deals primarily with death. In this week's Torah portion, Chaye Sarah, we open up with the fact that Sarah has passed away. Isaac is troubled by this. And the majority of the portion deals with Isaac finding his bride and ultimately being consoled by uh, or from the death of his mother. The portion then sadly also ends with the death of Abraham. And I think we can open up just by saying that death stinks. Who, right? We're all affected by it. We're all hurt by it. We're all pained by it. And this has been something from the beginning of time, that death is horrible, death stinks. And in fact, when we encounter death, we even have this built-in feeling that this isn't right. This isn't normal. This shouldn't be the way that it is. There has to be something more. The, uh, the author of Ecclesiastes is troubled by death, and, and when he writes his book, the, the Speaker in Ecclesiastes, he says, you know, death, death really stinks. You can spend this whole life building and amassing and, and doing great works, and then you die, and it moves on. It goes to your kids, and they ruin it, or they mess it up, or it's forgotten. Or, or the Speaker in Ecclesiastes also mentions and brings up, you, you know, sometimes the wicked prosper. And are blessed, and it's the righteous who might be suffer, uh, suffer or die or are persecuted. And so, how do we address this issue of death? Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting with verse 50, is where we start in this portion. Now, I'm going to read the specific portion for this week, but then we're going to go back and look at a more general, um, zoomed out picture of what Paul's talking about. So, in verse 50, it says this Now, this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. And by sleep here, he's referring to death, the grave. But we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality so when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal immortality then shall be brought to pass the saying which is written death is swallowed up in victory O death where is your sting O hades where is your victory the sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law but thanks be to god who gives us the victory through our Lord, Yeshua the Messiah. Therefore, my beloved brethren, 
Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Paul is dealing with this, and, and something is really interesting. Why is he talking about this subject? Why does he feel the need to be addressing this issue of death and being changed and transformed? When we look at the context of what's happening here in this chapter of 1 Corinthians, in the community there in Corinth, believers are being told that there is no resurrection of the dead. There are believers that have come into the Messianic community and been teaching a similar message as the Sadducees that there is no afterlife. There is no after death. You die and it's done. That's not part of the faith that we have. Isn't that crazy? Isn't that bizarre? You know, most of us don't think that way, but this was, this was a mindset that was prevalent at the time. If we go earlier in the chapter, we see this. Uh, in verse 12, it says, Now if Christ is preached that he had been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead then Christ is not risen, and if the Messiah is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and our faith is also empty. So Paul, later in the chapter, as he's talking about this, he's, he's really building a case and an argument against those who have come into the community of Corinth and been teaching the believers that, hey, afterlife, it's not real. The resurrection, it's not real. We live this life, and that's all we have, and when we die, we die. And can I just say, what a sad way to live. This, if it's the truth, is horrible news, especially for Messianic believers, as we will see. And so Paul builds his case of the resurrection after death. How we are in Messiah. How Messiah is merely the first fruits of the resurrection. And we follow in that hope that God has given us. And that's where we take hope. And Paul is so bold to even say that, and if this is not true, then all of our faith is in vain and is foolish. And so this is really like a, a key matter to those of us who have faith in Messiah, Yeshua, and follow God. Now, in those verses, he says something really interesting. If Christ is preached, if Messiah is preached that he has not been raised from the dead, it, it, that he has been raised from the dead, how do we say there is no resurrection? But if there is no resurrection, the Messiah is not risen. And if he's not risen, our preaching is empty and our faith is empty. Why is this the case? Well, at that period of time, and still in some circles today, especially in a lot of uh, kind of more secular circles of both Christianity and Judaism, we dumb down God's promises. We dilute His promises. We dilute His prophecy. We dilute His word. And, and many people say, well, you know, the prophets were a little maybe extravagant in what they said. They're maybe just a little bit too poetic. Really what's going to happen is the Messiah is going to come, and the Messiah, is, you know, he's just going to be a guy, kind of like Moses. He's going to be a political figure. And what's going to happen is he's going to come to the world, and there, there's going to be peace among nations, and it's going to be just kind of this beautiful utopia, and this new world is going to be brought in, which is just peace and love, and nations aren't going to war anymore. But this idea of resurrection from the dead, and taking away of sickness, and, and this Messiah figure, you know, that's all, that's all a little much. That's just the word of God being a little too poetic. What's really going to happen is humanity is just going to get to that place where our civilization is ideal and beautiful, and that's really the ultimate kingdom of God. And that's what many will say. But what this does is it, it misses the powerful truth of the gospel, the powerful truth 
of God's word and the powerful truth of what we look forward to in his hope and in his promises. Yeshua brings up some really interesting points in his ministry. If you'll turn with me to John chapter 28, starting with verse 36, it says this. Yeshua answered, and this is when he's being interrogated by Pilate, okay, right before his death. Pilate is asking him, are you the, are you the king of the Jews? Everyone's accusing you. You're, you're one of these rebellious messianic figures who's trying to overthrow the Romans. Do you claim yourself to be king? Are you king of the Jews? And Yeshua answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. What's the point Yeshua is making? The climate in the first century of the Messianic hope was one of like a Judah Maccabee 2.0. You guys are familiar with the story of Judah Maccabee, right? How we celebrate Hanukkah. Uh, A group of the Jewish people, while during Greek oppression, rose up and says, we're not going to stand for this. They overthrow the Greeks. They take back the temple and rededicate it. And we have Hanukkah. And we celebrate. It's a really awesome story. I mean, who doesn't like the story of Hanukkah? It's, it's great. It, it shows God's victory over the enemy. And it's really cool. And, and so that's what people were hoping for then with the Romans. That God would do the same thing he did with Judah Maccabee, only with the Messiah. The Messiah is going to come, kick some Roman butt, set everything straight, set up the kingdom of God, and bring it there. But Yeshua makes a point in which he says, my, my kingdom is not of this world in the sense of, I'm not just another political figure. I'm not just another king who is fighting for power. I'm not just someone who's going to overthrow one kingdom in order to set up another. But my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom, in fact, is greater than this world. Because as we're going to see, Yeshua set out to do something much different, much greater, and much more profound than what we could ever hope and plan for him to do. He brings up in John chapter 15, starting with verse 18, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So he says, just as the world is hating me and rejecting me, it's going to hate you and reject you. But fear not, we are not of the world. He says again in verse 33, in that same chapter, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. So what is all this talk of overcoming the world, not being of this world? Yes, I'm king, but I'm not king in this world. It's something greater, it's something different. Yeshua did not come merely to conquer our idea of Babylon, of Persia, of Greece, and of Rome. Something's really interesting. When you look throughout biblical history and you see when God shuffles kings and kingdoms, including Israel, when Israel has its period of sovereignty, one thing still seems to dominate and prevail and rule no matter what king is ruling, no matter what kingdom is in charge of the land. Do you know what that is? Sin. See, the reason our messianic expectation that we had in the first century, that many had, of a Judah Maccabee 2.0, the reason it doesn't work is because no matter what king you put in power, no matter what government is in charge of the sovereign borders of Israel, no matter who is shuffled around and no matter where God puts who, history proves time and time again that we all sin, that we're all wicked, 
and that we all struggle and deal with our own personal Babylon, our own personal Persia, our own personal Greece, our own personal Rome. We find time and time again that no matter who is in charge or what kingdom is set up, sin and death are still what conquers and reigns over humanity. And so when Yeshua comes, He doesn't come just to meet the expectation that we set. He says, no, 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 God has sent me to do something far above and beyond what you have expected in that I'm not going to conquer the Romans, I'm going to conquer why the Romans are wrong. I'm going to conquer why Babylon is wrong. I'm going to conquer why these things are wrong. I'm going to conquer the human heart. I'm going to conquer sin and death. My kingdom is not of this world. I'm not a political figure running for office. I'm not just another candidate. I'm not just another government. But what God has sent me to do is to get rid of the root cause of all these problems so that we can enter then the world to come which is ultimately what the kingdom of God is and what we hope for and what we long for. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that amazing? The religious leaders hated it. <laughs> right? They hated that that was his message. Why? Because they were concerned with the there and now. But see, the truth of it, the sad truth that really tests our faith and our hope is that for believers in the Messiah, it's not always about the here and now. As he said, sometimes in the here and now, the world is going to hate you. Just like it hated me. Sometimes in the here and now, you're going to have a lot of struggles. Sometimes in the here and now, if, if the kingdom of God is something that you are just going to set up in your own life here and now, that man is going to accomplish on their own, in their own efforts, you're going to be really disappointed. But the hope and the faith of one who is in Yeshua the Messiah, oh man, it's challenging and it's difficult and it tests us. But it's that even though this world is going to be ugly, is going to be disappointing, is going to be filled with chaos, we hope in the world to come in the resurrection. See, being a believer in the Messiah at its core requires that we believe in the age to come, in the world to come, in the ultimate conquering of sin and death through the work of Messiah. If that building block of the faith is removed, as Paul said, our faith in Yeshua is nonsense. It's silliness, it's goofiness, we're, we're doing this all in vain and it's useless if we don't have the hope of the world to come. That's why he's combating uh, this, this mindset and this teaching that's going on uh, in the community in Corinth. Uh, John chapter 3, very famous chapter in the book of John, right? Where Nicodemus comes to Yeshua and he comes by night, right? Because he's scared because following Yeshua is a really unpopular thing to do. <laughs> Amongst the religious community. And Nicodemus knows that, you know, he's this prophet sent from God. And, you know, it's, oh, it'd be kind of embarrassing for me to go see him. So he sneaks over at night and he asks him some questions. And, he, and in verse 3, he says, Yeshua answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Why? Because the kingdom of God is not what? Of this world. When we skip down to verse 16, he, he explains the whole born again. Nicodemus asked him about it. They, they talk about it. We go down to verse 16 and it says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. He explains to Nicodemus that the kingdom of God is something that you have to be born again for. 
And God is not sending me to be a Judah Maccabee 2.0 to render judgment and to establish the kingdom of God. God is sending me to open up the door and make it even possible for those to enter the kingdom of God by partaking in, in what God is accomplishing through me, through the atonement. Blows Nicodemus' mind, right? He's like, how, what do you mean? How is this possible? He's like, oh, are you not, are you not a teacher in Israel? You, know? you have to be born again to enter the kingdom of God. It's not something we just have by electing a certain figure. It's, it's not how it worked with the Maccabees. It's not how it worked with Moses. What's going on here is something that is deeper and greater and at the root cause of why humanity suffers and has sin. This is something that God, in fact, has been planning from the beginning of time. It's incredible. I love it. I love it. This message of Yeshua gives hope. Hope to us who have this struggle with, you know, why is there death? Why is there injustice in this world? We go down in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 to verse 20. So we address the issue of, you know, if, if you don't believe in the resurrection, then really your faith is in vain. And Yeshua explains why that is, because he's a king that's not of this world. His kingdom is not of this world. And ultimately the hope is in the resurrection, is in the world to come. Because he's not just overthrowing one government and replacing it with another, as many of us wanted and expected, and some still expect to this day. So now we move on, and in verse 20, But now Messiah is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Messiah all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Messiah the firstfruits, and afterwards those who are Messiahs at his coming. So this is the second great hope, right? The first one is that Yeshua's kingdom isn't of this world. And that he conquers the human heart. He gets rid of sin. He makes atonement on our behalf so that we have hope in the world to come. But the second thing is, we get to follow him. We get to follow suit. It's not just Messiah who dies and and is risen and gives us forgiveness. But he says, no, 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 no. Just as in Adam you had death in Messiah, you also will have a resurrection unto life. So not only are we atoned for, not only does the Father take away sin and death and give us a new life of righteousness, but we have hope that just as Yeshua is risen, we will rise and take part in the kingdom of God. There are not enough smiles and excitement going on from that statement. I see you at home. How great is our God? See, this isn't something that Paul just came up with on his own. This isn't something that's just, oh, this is a new Christiany, you know, this is a new, those people in Yeshua believe in some wacky stuff. Paul is quoting Isaiah. Paul is quoting Hosea. We go to Isaiah chapter 25 and verse 8 and we read this. He will swallow up death forever. Forever. And the Lord God will wipe away the tears from their eyes and, re- and the rebuke of his people he will take away from the earth. The Lord has spoken. He says in Isaiah, he will take away death forever. And in Hosea, the part that Paul quotes is in chapter 13, verse 14. And it says this, I will ransom them from the power of the grave, and I will redeem them from death. O death, I will be your plague. 
Isn't it? Oh, I love when God makes those statements of, of strength. You know, and Yeshua does the same thing. It's, it's so bold and brave, but it's so true. Right? You read something like that and your heart leaps because you know in your spirit, you know, the hope of God, the truth of the kingdom of God. Death, I am your plague. Or in the Septuagint, it actually reads like this. Oh, death, where is your punishment? Which is most likely what Paul was quoting, right? With, oh, death, where is your sting? The Greek translation there. Oh, grave, I will be your destruction. Pity is hidden from my eyes. How bold our God. He says, death, sin, watch out. Your time is limited. I'm coming for you. Paul draws on hope that's already there. He's not inventing something new. This isn't some crazy, new, ridiculous idea that Christianity or the believers in Yeshua or any of these people came up with. This is the truth of Scripture that is ultimately revealed in the Messiah. So let's reread this then. Let's go back and reread our passage. Knowing all this, the context of what comes before in 1 Corinthians, let's go through what is said here in the actual portion starting in verse 50. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Why can flesh and blood not inherit the kingdom of God? Because it's not of this world. It's in the world to come. And so if there's any hope in us receiving it, we have to be what? Born again. We have to have this transformation. Nor does corruption, corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. We shall not all die. But we shall all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised and we shall be changed. And so we have two groups of people here, right? Those who at this trumpet blast, at this coming... The dead will be resurrected, and those who are alive are transformed and are changed. Would you want to know the secret to that? I have no idea. <laughs> I don't think any of us do, right? What does it mean that you know the dead are, are risen with these new kind of transformed, and then we are transformed? And new? It, it doesn't make sense. It's, it's, it's easy to see why someone would be like, oh, this is crazy. How, do you, how can you believe this? I find that God oftentimes is able to pull off things that maybe my mind can't wrap itself around. I find that we have a God who, when we can't conceive of how something might be accomplished, God seems to have a plan that works just fine. I seem to find that when we doubt what God is able to do, He proves us wrong 10 out of 10. Would you agree? And so, when I can't wrap my mind around the dead are raised and those who are alive are transformed. What does that mean? What does that look like? I know that God is well capable to do what he has promised. This is actually referenced in the book of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 24. right? The famous uh, chapter where Yeshua is, is talking about the end and his second coming and all these things. Um, Yeshua actually mentions this blowing of the trumpet that Paul mentions. And the gathering together of God's children. Uh, starting with verse 29, it says this, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall, fall from heaven. And can I just give a disclaimer here? You know, I'll, I'll, there's a lot of people online who, you know, get all wacky and, you know, freak out about, you know, a lunar eclipse or a blood moon or this and that. No, notice what it says right here. Immediately after the tribulation of those days. The sun will be darkened, 
the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall. Okay, so uh, I think once the tribulation's over, we can all be sound and when those things are going to happen. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with great power and glory. This is not an event that is likely to be missed. The, the way it's being described here is something that is pretty incredible, pretty awe-inspiring. We have this vision of all the powers of the heavens being shaken, the Son of Man coming on clouds, and all the tribes of the earth mourning, realizing what this is. He will send his angels with the great sound of the trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one, wind, uh, from one end of heaven to the other. And I'm just making kind of an inference here based on Paul that's both dead and alive. That when Messiah returns and the trumpet is sounded, the graves are open, the dead are raised, he gathers together, the exile is over, the kingdom of heaven is here. Man, what a day that's going to be. Man, what, what a day that's going to be. Whether I die before I get there or I get to see it with my own two eyes, he's got me covered. Isn't that encouraging? Yep. Isn't that encouraging? Isn't that encouraging to you know that God's not just coming for those who you know are still around when He comes back? <laughs> oh, sorry, you didn't make it. You know, whether because of bad health or a freak accident. You know, I've I've had several friends in my lifetime who have passed away not because of age, but because of some horrible accident. You have a drunk driver, or you have an accident at work, or you have this or that. Isn't it great to know that God doesn't let those people slip through the cracks? That at his coming, his kingdom is not of this world, but it's one where he raises the dead. The believers who died with faith in him. It blows my mind that Paul's even dealing with this in, in Corinth. That people are even making this assertion that, oh, the resurrection is just a, you know, it's just a hoax and all this. And he's like, then what's the point? What's the point of all of this if, if, if that's the case? Um, he actually gives testimony about all the eyewitness accounts there in Corinthians as well as part of his argument. But it's referring to what's here in Matthew. Okay, the trumpet sounds, and that's when this takes place. Okay, let's keep going uh, with 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting with verse 30, uh, 53 now. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, speaking of both the prophecy in Isaiah that we read and the prophecy of Hosea that we read, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is what? Sin. See, this is the true enemy here. Sin and death. This is a concept we have to realize when we're reading Paul. And when we're talking about the gospel. When we're talking about Yeshua and what he came to do. That sin and death are the enemy. Greece, is, Greece Rome, Babylon, Persia. Those are symptoms of the enemy. That guess what? Even Israel falls prey to. If, if the hope of the kingdom of heaven and the hope of the kingdom of God was just that Israel would have its land and sovereignty and the exiles would be gathered, which is a part of it, right? We don't speak against that. That's the hope that we're grafted into. That's the root that we, our branches are plugged into. 
Right? We are grafted into Israel. We hope for this kingdom of Israel. But if that was merely it, then the kingdom of heaven would have been at the time of David. But guess what? David had sin. The Israelites had sin. And Israel still has sin today. We still have sin today. Believers. So it's key and crucial here to, to realize in Paul's writings, the enemy is not some government of man. The enemy is sin and death. And when those things can be conquered and taken out of the way, then God can reign. The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. Now, whoa, 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 wait, what does that mean? Right. Now, this, this is one of those many passages in the New Testament that people use, right? They, they cherry-pick from Paul and like, see, anything that's in the Old Testament, that's in the Torah, right? All those burdensome commandments. See, that's bad and wrong. See, the strength of sin is the law. That means the law is bad. Right? It's evil. It's, ooh, the law. Right? <laughs> but when you realize what it's saying, it makes so much sense. Why is the strength of sin the law? How does the law give sin its strength? It's really quite simple. When you read the rest of Paul, when you look at you know, the context here, it's because if any of us, if you or I stand up, side by side, comparison, to the holy, beautiful, incredible Word of God, guess what? We, we don't look so great. Right? We might look good in ourselves, right? We might look in the mirror and say, you know what, you're, you're a pretty holy guy. You're a pretty righteous believer, you know, Chris. And I might look out at the world, right? I might look at all the heathens and these people and this group of people, and by comparison, I'm like, oh yeah, I am pretty righteous. Yeah, I keep the Sabbath, you know, I keep Passover, I do that, right? We compare ourselves to things that look worse because it's easy for us then to look good. But what Paul says is, but when you stand up against God's word, Oh, you don't look so hot anymore. <laughs> then the imperfections start to be a little bit more easy to see. The bad parts start pulling out. And we realize, oh, oh, God, do I need help and assistance and perfection and transformation in you. Because I'm still not there. So Paul says, see, death sting is sin. And sin has strength in the law because the law points out sin. Not that the law... Is, is bad or opposed to God or opposed to the gospel or Yeshua. To the contrary, it's the law by contrast to sin that makes this evident to us. By what Paul's saying, it's, it's the fact that the law is so good that sin gets its power. You see, it, it's, we, we completely mix up what is actually being said there. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord, Yeshua, the Messiah. What does that mean? Even though when I stand side by side to God's word, I don't look so hot and it looks pretty bad for me, God gives us victory over that. And he gives us victory over that in Messiah. It, it, it reminds me, it's reminiscent of when the children of Israel stood at the base of Mount Sinai and they received Torah, right? And they said, yes, we will be your people, you will be our God. And the prophets likened it to this beautiful wedding and Moses isn't gone a month and they break like the top three. You know, we receive covenant, we receive his holy word. And right there, by contrast, we are wicked and evil and sinful and fall and stumble. And so if our hope was in the law to save us and to get us right with God, ooh, 
Man, that's bad news for all of us. But it's reminiscent of just as they had that sin right there at the base of Mount Sinai, Moses says, you know, God says, I'm going to wipe them out and start with you, Moses. And Moses does what? He makes intercession on behalf of the children of Israel. He says, God, think about your mercy and your great name and your goodness. Have mercy upon this people. And what does God do? He has mercy. That's the picture we have here with Messiah. If we're going up just against the law, news looks bad. But Messiah comes and makes atonement and intercession. Makes forgiveness possible. Makes a gateway possible in God. Not to the abolition of the law, but to the fact that the law is holy and good and what we should be striving for. Therefore, my beloved brethren. So Paul ends with this. It's really important. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. Because see, the temptation is, if I no longer believe in the resurrection, why do I have to do all these good stuff? Right? Ecclesiastes brings this point out. The wicked prosper. There are people in this world who are evil and against God and wicked, and they have blessings and abundance and they prosper. And there are people who serve God and give everything for God and are beheaded and persecuted and suffer. And if that's it, why bother being righteous? Why bother following the commandments of God? Why bother honoring Him? Now, the speaker in Ecclesiastes at the very end ultimately comes to the conclusion. He says, you know, when everything's said and done, fear God and keep His commandments. He comes to the conclusion that that's the best thing to do anyways. But we go further than that in which Paul says, there is a resurrection, there is a world to come. And so even if your righteousness might not be rewarded or counted or compensated for in this world, ultimately, we're living for the kingdom. Therefore, right, Don't think that your deeds are done in vain. And don't think that your faith is in vain. Even if sometimes you don't see the fruit. Even if sometimes you suffer. Even though sometimes it doesn't look good. Yeshua echoes this in Matthew 24 at the end of his passage as well. Talking about the end. And he says this, Therefore, uh, verse 44, Therefore you also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. In Yeshua we have hope. In Yeshua we have life. In Yeshua we have the kingdom to come, the world to come. And blessed are those who, when he comes, find us doing the work in that hope and in that anticipation. Amen? So even in this Torah portion, when we see death like Abraham and Sarah, we're comforted knowing We're living for the kingdom of God. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the gift of your Sabbath. I ask that um, this day would be blessed as we sit and soak in the beauty of your scriptures and your holiness, that you would transform us, that you would change us, that you would continue to give us hope and strength to live for your kingdom and not for this world. In Yeshua's name, amen. And now we leave you with the ironic blessing.
אדוני פניו אליך ויחונך יישא אדוני פניו אליך ועשה bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you, be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. When the sun has set on a Friday night, bringing peace into your home. Families will gather all around singing Shabbat Shalom, everybody sing Shalom Put a smile upon your face He's got the whole world in his hands So they, his commands And you will know peace Shalom Ciao